Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Douglas Wilson's brand new satirical novel, Ride Sally Ride, is available for pre-order. It's a satirical novel about love, the crack-up of the United States, and refusing to back down when the whole world calls you crazy. A college kid tosses his neighbor's sex bot wife in a trash compactor. He will go on trial for murder. Get the full story at ridesallybook.com, and you can even download the first chapter. Don't miss it today, ridesallybook.com. Welcome to the podcast, episode 156. 156. For our discussion point today, I want to change the subject a little bit, go in a little bit of a different direction, and um, do some apologetics slash theology. So here's the question, uh, and I forget how this occurred to me, but it did occur to me, and I and I thought I would talk about it uh, a little bit with you all. We all know, we should know that there are certain things that God cannot do. Now he's not God is not constrained by anything outside of himself. Uh, there's no external force or bigger God or law that God must submit to. The way I like to put it is that God can do anything that is consistent with his own nature and character. So the the only limits on God are self-limits. He's self-consistent. And so God is the truth, so he cannot lie. Uh, God is holy, so he does not entice to evil. He does not tempt people to evil. Related to this is the fact that God cannot draw round squares. God cannot do anything that's fundamentally a contradiction for the same reason, because he he cannot contradict himself. So can God lift heavy rocks? Yes. Can God make a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it? Uh, No. And as C.S. Lewis puts it somewhere, nonsense doesn't cease to be nonsense simply because you preface it with the words God can. Okay? So I I believe that logic or right reason is like holiness and kindness and love and justice, an attribute of God's. So uh, the reason God cannot draw round squares is not because some logician teacher, some logic teacher, uh, not Aristotle, is not sitting off to the side saying you can't do that. God cannot draw round squares because he cannot contradict himself, because God is of necessity self-consistent. Okay, now that's, uh, that's the setup to this uh, theological issue. It occurred to me that this being the case, God could not, not even God, could create an honest atheist. An honest atheist is not a possibility. There is no universe in which that could be the case. And here's how it works. God can obviously uh, create a rock that doesn't believe in God because the rock doesn't, is not capable of believing anything. God could create a rutabaga that did not believe in him. God could create a water molecule that did not believe in him. But if God creates a sentient being, a being that can think, 
a being that can believe things. And let's say he created uh, an, a perfect planet, like Garden of Eden type of thing, and God created a sentient, intelligent being, but knowledge of God was withheld from that being. I don't believe God could do that because God cannot create any universe in which thanksgiving is not the duty of the creature the intelligent creature. God cannot create a cosmos. He could not create a universe or a planet over which he was not God. It is the uh, deep moral responsibility of every sentient being to praise the Lord. And if there were a sentient being, an unfallen sentient being, completely and totally honest, and you asked him, who put you here? Or how'd you get here? For him to say, I'm just here, I just am, that is, in my thinking, a round square. So, uh, continuing with podcast 156, our word for today's venture in homartiology is basanistes, basanistes, B-A-S-A-N-I-S-T-E-S, basanistes. Uh, and this is going to be an odd one. The, the, this word means tormentors or torturers. Tormentors or torturers. There's only one reference to it in the New Testament. Uh, there's only one reference to this noun. And um, I'll give that occasion where uh, it's referred to. And then uh, we'll go into the much needed explanation. We find it at the conclusion of the parable of the slave who owed his master a million bucks or something around there, and who had that debt forgiven, and who then went out and choked a fellow slave who apparently owed him a quarter. You, you remember that parable, right? So one slave owes the master megabucks. The master says, let's sell this guy and his wife and family, and we'll try and square the debt that way. The slave begs for mercy. Mercy is extended to him. His debt is forgiven. And then that slave went out and choked a fellow slave who owed him a quarter. The parable ends this way. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. That's Matthew 18, 34. So the master was angry, turned him over to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. So not only did, uh, you know, a few centuries ago in our culture, we had debtor prisons where someone owed money they'd be thrown into prison until they paid what they owed. And of course, the catch-22 is while you're in prison, you can't make money to pay the creditor off, and so you just sit in prison because you can't make money. Now, apparently, there's probably um, some rhyme to that, that rhyme or reason to that system where if you got thrown in prison, that puts pressure on a kindly uncle come up with the money, pay your creditor, and then you get out of prison and you owe your uncle. They were applying pressure that way, perhaps. But in the first century, not only could uh, you be thrown into prison until you paid everything, but you could be thrown into prison and tortured uh, until you paid everything. Delivered him to the tormentors, and the word there is basanistes. In the governance of a Roman household or estate, one of the methods employed was that of torturing the slaves. It's not necessarily something that would occur every day, and because it didn't occur every day, when the need arose, you would call a professional 
uh, someone who owned all the needed equipment and who knew how to use it. You know, like here in, in Moscow, there's Han rental. There's a rental. So if you're a do-it-yourselfer, weekend warrior type of guy who wants to dig post holes or you want to rent a tractor or a little bobcat or something to move some dirt around, you go to a an outfit that owns all the equipment and rents it out to you. And in the first century, they had that kind of um, system where uh, you could rent a torturer. And the name for these um, guys was bassinistes. I'm listing this profession as a homarteological profession because it's not a line of work that a Christian should want his son to go into. Uh, Not what we want. The Lord uses uh, this word, I believe, the same way he used the image of a thief in the night. When the Lord returns like a thief in the night, it will not be to steal something. And when people are who refuse to forgive, uh, when Christians have been forgiven a million bucks by the Lord, then demand the fellow across the, the sanctuary who owes them a quarter, who took his parking spot, some trifle, and they demand that that person pay what they owe. The torment that we go through in, in hell, the torment that we go through when we are unforgiven by God, is not brought about, I'm convinced, by external torturers, uh, the, the far side image of, um, of hell, you know, with demons with pitchforks and the, the demons are torturing the, the people in the fire. That's not scriptural. The lake of fire is, it says in Revelation, the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So if we were to ask who the king of hell is, it's not the devil. Uh, the, the, the chief prisoner in hell is the devil. And in that respect, Dante is a lot closer to the scripture. Uh, the devil is imprisoned in hell. Um, not the king of hell, not the ruler of hell. And so I believe that I, I, I believe we should have, should not have a simplistic medieval view of hell as God's torture chamber, where he brings in the outside professionals like we have in the parable here, but it is torment and, and it is torment that the people go through and there's a more sophisticated cause of it. It's a self-tormenting uh, sort of thing, I'm convinced. But nevertheless, it's very real. So, Basanistes, tormentors. And so, and, and this is a good example of how uh, the people who claim to be triggered by things, this is a good example of the Lord not caring whether or not uh, a reference to the guy from whom you could rent the thumbscrews. Well, that might, might that be triggering to some? Well, yeah, it might. So my book review this time is a book that I assigned many years ago uh, when I was teaching a freshman class at uh, NSA. We had the students read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which is a very insightful, good book in lots of ways. But I had them read that book and this, this book that I'm going to commend to you as a point counterpoint. Don't get too worked up about some of these things. Uh, the book I'm uh, reviewing uh, or commenting on uh, this time is a book that's encouragingly entitled, Everything Bad is Good for You. Everything Bad is Good for You. And uh, it's written by a guy named John, last name of Johnson. So everything bad is good for you. And what it, what it has to do with, what it deals with, are some of the things that uh, many parents worry about 
video games, television shows, etc. Now, uh, there's one qualifier I'm going to put on the front end of this. Uh, Johnson is not writing from a Christian perspective. So the thing that he does not go into is some of the moral components. When he says everything bad is good for you, he's talking about good for you in terms of intellectual development, he's, or your education. He's not talking about moral development. There are video games that are morally corrupting, for example, and Christian parents ought not to let their kids, uh, you know, uh, if, <laughs> if, you've, if you notice that your kid comes home with a video game that says you too can be a serial killer, um, that's a danger sign. You should intervene. You should step in and go get some counsel. You, you know, do something with that. I'm talking about the, the worry that many Christians have, and Neil Postman of uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death would have had, assuming that X number of hours on uh, playing video games is bad for your, your brain, bad for your intellectual development, and so on. It's that kind of thinking that Johnson is interested in challenging. There, there are several observations that we can make about the modern world. One of them is that educational standards are going down. SAT scores, ACT scores, uh, the educational system is failing. And uh, the renorming of the tests hides the decline. Okay, so when you have a test where you need the, uh, like an IQ test has to be renormed, and if things are falling apart and it's falling apart generally, in a declining system, that decline is going to be hidden. But by the same token, you're going to find that renormed tests like an IQ test will hide or bury the improvements. So, for example, a, a number of years ago, uh, Charles Murray wrote a book called The Bell Curve, and it was really controversial at the time because one of the things that Murray confronted was the fact that IQ tests, there are ethnic disparities uh, with IQ tests, blacks behind whites, whites behind Asians, and so on. So what you've done is you've got these tests that say, okay, when it comes to IQ, Asians are ahead of whites and whites are ahead of blacks, and won't this reinforce uh, stereotypes, etc. And so there was a great deal of controversy about that at the time. Murray was accused of all kinds of things that he wasn't. Murray's no racist. He's not a, he's not a problem that way. He was simply following the data. But uh, somebody who was bothered by what Murray was saying was a, a gentleman named Flynn. And Flynn comes up as a character in this book, Everything Bad is uh, Good for You. And he drilled down, did some detailed studies on IQ tests and found out that the IQ tests over the 20th century were periodically renormed, which meant that the average, I think the middle on an IQ test, the middle is 100. And when the whole group starts to move in one direction or the other, at some point you have to revalue the currency, right? And, and renorm it so that it's at 100. Well, he found out, for example, that although blacks today score behind whites today on IQ tests, the average black today is right around where the average white was at the time of the First World War. In other words, IQ is not a fixed reality. People can get smarter over time. Okay, now this creates a, a very interesting um, setup because we have a failing school system where kids today don't know 
you know, who discovered America, or they don't know when the Civil War was. Some of them don't know that there was a Civil War. But that just tells you, you know, what's being taught, because those tests measure what you know, what you were taught, as opposed to tests that figure out cognitive ability, what you can figure out, what you can piece together, um, how quick you are, how intelligent you are. One other comment about this, um, if we think about street smarts or how subtle or adroit or deft someone has to be today simply to drive across a big city, you know, to get from one side of town to the other, the modern world is really challenging. Uh, Johnson compares, you know, the old dragnet television, the cop show, uh, where it was possible to entertain people with a half-hour cop show where one mystery per half hour, a couple of guys walking through this situation who done it, and they resolve everything in the space of half an hour. Well, today, cop shows have multiple plot lines, multiple characters, the story arcs sprawl across the entire season, and you need a master's degree simply to keep track of who all the characters are. Entertainment is a lot more challenging. Now, it may be less moral, but uh, entertainment of the sort that he's addressing here requires a lot more um, mental gymnastics. I, I'd recommend that you read both these books together. If you've not read Neil Postman, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and Everything Bad is Good for You, read them side by side. Prepare to be provoked and challenged. If you're if you're worried about your teenager because you think that playing video games is going to bring in brain rot, I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm.